All right, um, ladies and gentlemen, welcome uh, to another episode of the Inevitable Podcast, first episode of uh, 2022. And, you know, today I have an honor to have here Paulo Silveira. Uh, and uh, if you heard that on the background, uh, that's uh, just a massive thunderstorm happening right now in uh, Sao Paulo. But uh, we keep on going. No problem. As long as we have internet, we should be good. So um, I'm the founder and CEO of Atman. Um, as uh, some of you know, we are a different type of venture firm where every founder uh, that's a part of our fund is also a partner in the fund, plus uh, several other things that we'll be rolling out this year. And our mission, ultimately, it's always to enable and partner with inevitable people and provide them with leverage. Uh, you know, and I think today's conversation is uh, very, very exciting because Paolo is uh, someone from the uh, old guard and old school, uh, you know, tech and business entrepreneur in, in Brazil. Certainly a full, full stack founder, having built uh, a business, having had an exit, as well as being an active participant in the local startup ecosystem. Uh, Paulo co-founded with his brother, Grupo Alura, right? It's the largest educational platform in Brazil for folks that want to learn um, how to become uh, a software engineer uh, and multiple other disciplines within the spectrum of digital transformation. He's the CEO of that group. Uh, and they've taught over half a million people uh, and have more than 1,300 courses in uh, Portuguese, uh, covering a pretty wide range of uh uh, topics within, you know, digital business and, and technology. Uh, Paulo also went to school uh, at uh, at USP. It's a very active angel investor and also podcaster. So always happy to have someone else that, you know, actually has recorded far more podcasts than, than I have and has a pretty well-known podcast in Portuguese for Brazilian founders. Uh, thanks again, Paulo, for the time. It's a pleasure to have you here on the Inevitable Podcast. Thank you, Pedro. Thank you for your time and giving me some space. It's always a pleasure to be part of a podcast and not being a host. It's it's quite amazing. Thank you. No, my pleasure. Um, you know, and typically we combine here the story of your life with you know current uh, big questions that we have in our world. And starting with that, when was the first time that you know you were hit with the path of having technology being an important part of your life? when you knew that, you know, hey, I'm in front of something that's going to be present in, in my reality for a long time. Yeah, I, I would say that just as maybe the majority of programmers and startup founders, I got access to, the com to computers when I was still young, eight, nine years old, when my father bought a computer that People who are not from Brazil will never know about it. It, it was called CP400. It was one of those copycats that w during the 80s in Brazil, we had something called Closed Market or something like that. Do you know the name, Pedro? It's Reserva de Mercado in Portuguese, which is something that we were trying to protect our industries. And if you would like to sell computers or every kind of electronic and machines, you should build it in Brazil. So the companies needed to buy all the components around and create their own computers. What happened was 
that the companies were copycatting and recreating all the computers, uh, the Z80 and all these kind of famous Apple II and famous computers and famous processors and selling them here. So my father bought a computer and when he didn't have the money for that and my mother got upset. And I think it's a pretty common story for those days. And I, I remember liking a lot coding in Logo. So I had this contact with all these things that Simon Papert did back then. And nowadays it's Scratch and so on, right? So, and with basic. So these were my first contact with computer programming languages and doing some basic games and small codes, not knowing exactly what I was doing. And after that, I got interested in computer games and video games. So I think it's pretty obvious. And, and I know I come from a lower middle class. I know that I've been, I had a lot of privileges having access to a computer back home, right? Got it. Um, and were you always entrepreneurial in, in terms of just being a builder, building things for yourself? When was the first time that you've made a little bit of money with something that you were building and you're like, ah, I want to follow this entrepreneurial path? Yeah, that's that's a funny question because I never saw, uh, I never saw myself as an entrepreneur or something like that. But after after the company started, I started realizing that during my senior years and my uh, school time, I was always trying to build a small community and leading small projects. Most of them, I was not going up to the end, right? Not finishing them, What? it's a shame. But nowadays, I can see that I was trying to build something. And I like this thrill. And and I had some, uh, I tried some stuff with my brother. My, my brother created a small company trying to buy and sell puppies. Yeah, real dogs. I, yeah, I was going to say, no, not, not crypto cats or, you know, uh, apes. Yeah, yeah, no, the real ones. Yeah, not, not the coins. And it was during the internet boom in the 90s, in the end of the 90s, in Brazil, it was a mess, right? No one had, almost no one had internet access. So, and we were also trying to buy and sell old magazines and stickers and so on. So we were trying to do some commerce and buy stuff, selling stuff and so on. So how was your professional life before um, you started Kylum? So before creating my own school, right? Because we are uh, a group of other companies. We are a real school nowadays online. I've always wanted to follow a path in the academic side, right? So I was doing my master's degree in computer science in, in combinatory and so on. And I was looking for a job as a professor. 
But at the time, I think I was not not skilled enough and not, well, you know, for for the PhD and for being a professor, you need a lot of effort and to be really hardworking and studying really hard. And it's a really incredible job. And so my first steps were inside some consulting firms. So doing developing software for other companies. Mm-hmm. And right after that, I got a job at some microsystems. So before Oracle bought them, nowadays they don't exist anymore, right? So they were the creators of Java and I was really passionate about a specific language. This is another common story, right? So usually founders are totally passionate about the stack that they use, although they shouldn't be, but they are. And I was totally in love with Java and I was pursuing a career at some microsystems and doing stuff in Java and the open source community. And I I started getting involved with all the ecosystem here in Brazil and abroad, especially with Java, not only, but especially with Java. So I was um, a Java boy, doing code and conferences and maybe my first big step towards uh, real school was creating a big discussion forum here in Brazil. So nowadays we do have uh, Facebook groups, Yahoo Answers and especially Stack Overflow. But back then there weren't so creating. So all the spaces for developers, they were what we call now decentralized, right? And it's it's really sad that we lost this. Maybe we will regain, regain some aspect of this. And so I created a community which was called Kuji. It's Java user groups in, in Portuguese. So and when it, you mean we've lost it, you mean just people meeting in person for events? Is that what you're saying because of the pandemic? Or Not only in n- person. I mean that online communities nowadays are totally dependent on Google, Facebook, and the big, big four or the biggest techs in the world. So we don't have the control anymore for creating a healthy, decentralized independence that are not subject to small and detail and some details on their terms. So if you want to create something big, you, you will always depend on Telegram, WhatsApp, Facebook, Google, and so on. Back then, you could just launch your own forum and deploy it. And it was fine. No one were no one was looking at incredible features and connection to huge social networks and things are totally centralized nowadays. And I feel that that time communities were being created in a more organic way without so much, the ads are not the problem, but you know, we are not purpose driven anymore. You are just creating your own group so you can sell some stuff. And I'm not against it. I do this nowadays, but when you start directly this way, I think that the community is not as strong or as it could be. Do you think that part a portion of this sentiment, I'd say that you know, it's probably like the dilution of uh, 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 an overall camaraderie for the greater good that started with 
with open source might have migrated to crypto? I know second. Like yes, I, I think so. I think right. so. I think that in, in, during the first ten years in this century, right, uh, we had two big mo movements in software, it, and they are agile and the open source. So these communities were that some like the underdogs, the big companies, they didn't believe in open source and agile. I was like, people were making jokes about open source and agile. And nowadays they are totally mainstream. No one questions it, right? You don't have a company or a startup that will say, hey, here we don't use agile and you can't use open source. 15 years ago, this was the reality, right? Yeah, well, I would say that so, probably Microsoft is, my, by me, the top three open source contributors in the world today. Yeah, and we've invested. They I've just bought GitHub. It's totally amazing because 15 years ago, they were just saying, hey, no, we will not join Linux open source. We will not open our codes. We don't want you to join open platform and. I don't know, protocols and patterns and so on. Nowadays, it's it's the opposite, right? And your comparison with the crypto scene, it's a, that's perfect because what I think is that in 10 years, all the huge banks and companies, they will treat crypto and DeFi just as agile and open source nowadays. They will say, hey, look, we just do it. And it's normal and everybody's doing it. But nowadays there is this big, huge resistance. And the ones who are embracing this right now, they they will have a huge, huge advantage, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, there's also quite a lot of money to be made in open source. And it's kind of surprising. I mean, that's why probably they've, it, take, it, it took them a little longer, but, you know, uh, made a few investments in that space with you know rocket check code cov and 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 and, a, and GitLab as well so a few you know and, and, and a few others so it's um but i th i think i think it's interesting you know your your perspective when, when we're talking about just overall camaraderie and uh and um and and, and collaboration and probably like um the projects usually start that way because the best businesses starts as, you know, they always start as toys with, you know, founders solving their own problems. But then once it scales, right. it gets to a point where the incentives, I mean, fundamentally, they just have to, they just have to change, right? Yeah. Um, but going back, I guess, to, you know, switching gears a little bit to your, uh, your story. So you guys uh, started, right, as an in-person programming course. How did the business blossom into something uh, so large? And when was the moment where you've decided to actually start and you took that jump, you know, there, there, there's a time where like, you've got to put, you know, your reputation and risk and capital on the line. So when did the idea came about? And then when did you actually start, decide to start the company? Yeah, we started at 2004 because I was not allowed at Sun, that's exactly the story. I was not allowed at Sun Microsystems to teach any kind of open source, almost any kind of open source technology or agile software development because Sun Microsystems was not making money on that. So that, that was how all the big companies were thinking that time. Maybe Google was already ahead. And so I decided, hey, I need to create a school where we can teach what we see that the market is using right now. 
And that's how we launched uh, this brand, which is called Kaelum. It was in person, right? The offline brick and mortar, traditional school, small school, computer school. But at that time, you need to remember that, hey, learn how to code. You can be a developer. This was not the hype. No one was talking about that's a cool career. They, it's very well paid. There are a lot of opportunities 20 years ago. So at that time, the course that we had in person were only for people who were already on the market, right? So not advanced course, but they were not in inter-level or basic level ones. And that's how we started. And from 2004 to 2010, we just grew organically, like launching other sites and other cities, right? At Rio and Brasilia, that uh, so the biggest cities in Brazil, economical centers. And at 2010, my brother told me that hey, we should take a look at online learning. And we got scared about that idea because, well, you know the drill. That's exactly the innovator's dilemma. Without that, if we can offer something online for half of the price or even less. We will cannibalize our own market. We were growing and it was not a good idea for us at that time to launch something that could eat our own lunch, right? And at the same time, 2010 in Brazil, we had what? We had 2007 or 8, 2008, the iPhone. At 2010, 2011, where we, when we launched the online version, no one in Brazil had access to online videos on demand in the desktop. And on the mobile, it was just a joke here in Brazil, right? Mm -hmm. So it was really a bet. And then we launched Kailung Online, right? with only content that we were not providing face-to-face. -face. So mm -hmm. we were just like Kodak and scared about everything. We got scared, hey, just launch all the content that we don't think it's our 80-20 and let's see how it goes. So uh, I see right now, it's, it's quite easy. Well, after everything happens, right? I can just tell you that we did a mistake. We should have moved forward much Fast, faster, faster, <laughs> faster, faster, and deployed all exactly the same course that we had the face-to-face -face, online, a cheaper version with lower margins, exactly what the book says, exactly what the book says. And at 2013, things were getting bigger in the online version. So we decided to launch a different brand because things were getting a little bit complicated. If you take a look at General Assembly and others that they do offer online, offline, part-time, longer courses, grad school and so on, it's quite a mess. I, I, I like to compare, it's just so many call to actions, right? And so many products at the same page. And uh, here in Brazil, we have a uh, typical form of restaurants like the 
churrascaria, right? The barbecue here in Brazil, where they offer some of this kind of meat house. They also offer pizza and sushi. And I, I, <laughs> I, I, it's exactly the same analogy. You need to have a product and be laser focused on your CTAs and say, hey, look here, it's a subscription model yearly. And you have access right now, today, uh, this, this and that, and that's the conditions. Instead of having, hey, you can have the in-person on Monday in Sao Paulo for this much, or all you can eat access right now, it's just too confusing. So we launched a separate brand, also because we thought that the customers would be a different, a different audience. Uh, in the end, they are quite, quite the same. And so things, so everything started to grow a lot more one year or two years after we changed the brand. We lost some momentum when we launched the new brand because, you know, you don't have the authority. Yeah. Even if you have the powered buy, it doesn't matter. People know you by the other name. Do you think separating and the brands, though, was a bad idea or would you have done differently? That's also a pretty good question because at first... We thought it was a mistake. At 2014, we were saying, hey, people, they don't understand. They trust the older brand and so on. But after some time, we thought we made the right decision. Maybe the other option, good option, would be closing at 2013 all the face-to-face, -face, the brick-and-mortar operation, and focusing only on the online business, but they it was much smaller than the face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. So it would be really a crazy idea, and I, I, I'm not so, so brave like this. So it would be really hard to do something like that. Got it. Um, oh, interesting. And today, is it 100% online, or have you guys resumed in-person uh, courses and, you know, not just that, but what's your vision for for learning in 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 the future? Yeah, unfortunately not. We, we will not resume for for the short term because well, all the COVID situation. So we were before COVID, we were something like uh, fifteen percent face to face, eighty five online, and during COVID, this was down to almost zero and so we did not resume and I think that there will be space for the face to face even if it's we, we try always you will see a lot of people talking about hard skills versus soft skills that hard skills you can use pure online learning and soft skills are much better discussing group and face to face but I really think that even the hard skill, the hardest one, you will have some benefits sitting down and using a table and pen and talking to your professor directly. And yes, there it's I, I do still prefer the face-to-face -face learning, right? So maybe it's a generation generational thing, but I think there will be space, of course, for a more premium version for different situations and so on and well that's it nowadays we are not resuming but we are launching our undergrad and grad courses also and some of them will need because of the regulation here in brazil we will need some time 
face to face. Okay, and so you've been in this the educational business for technology um, for quite a long time, right? And so she's probably far before you started. Then you know you start seeing the um, uh, the venture back coding boot camps, uh, as well as the trend of ISAs, right? Uh, so what's your take on? Both ultimately, I've uh, I've never understood for a while when I was in San Francisco. I worked out of Galvanize, and um, in I've also worked out of uh, uh, General. Uh, what's the name of that other one? General General Assembly. General Assembly. That's right. And uh, I never understood why they raised so much money because there was that combination of real estate and education, but. Um, and none of them actually were very good exits for the investors, although they've, uh, you know, strongly like capitalized these businesses. And the jury's still out on ISAs, although I am um, quite bullish on uh, on that model, if legally well done and done with the correct incentives. So just would love to get your take on, on both, I guess, if you see that coding boot camps are... Uh, a potential venture backable business or not, and then if um, you know your your take overall on on ISAs and and for those that don't know, um, ISAs are just um, uh, a form of uh, I wouldn't call it like equity ownership, but maybe revenue sharing the future in case you know you graduate someone with certain skills, they end up getting a job and you get a cut of uh, of that by charging a lower cost or sometimes just giving it for free. Uh, um, you, you know, it's just a it's it's just a new incentive that has been created in the in in the last few years. Yeah, that that's a good point. I would also add the marketplace, right? The education marketplace. So my personal view, I I do not understand the venture capital, uh, pretty good. So it's a personal view, right, Pedro? You can correct me, and, ha- and maybe you have a totally different opinion, or anyone that. No, I, I wouldn't. Cur- I prefer that we all that we disagree. I am a very pro disagreement person because I think that's how you learn and grow. And uh, so ultimately, you know, but uh, yeah, just uh, uh, that, that that's what good debate is for, you know. Yeah. So nowadays, my opinion, and it's not only mine, is that education, even the attack, uh, if you are not a tool, if you are really into education or creating content, selling content, buying content, and you have students that are learning using your startup or your company, the growth factor is not as big as what VCs are expecting. You can't put more money and get more students and making them reaching their goals as fast and as the VCs want. Uh, I like to compare this. We are, I am a school, right? You don't have school or colleges where you just build them as quickly as possible. And then you just put 10,000 students in the same college. And after one month, they have all the skills that they need. And after six months, you can have another round and put Another 100,000 students inside your yeah, school. You can't have a baby in four months, right? It doesn't matter how, exactly, much, how exactly. much cash you put on. Exactly. It's not, we are not a fintech where you can, you can have more transactions faster. You, uh, until my brother likes to say that, until we don't have a matrix-style downloadable content to our brains, you can't say that your startup will revolutionize your 
learning experience. You can't... All these boot camps that says, hey, look, uh, we do what your college degree do, does in four years, we do in three months, they are just lying. Because you, 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 you simply you can't do that. You, you, there is no way you can... Otherwise, we would be learning three months and just throwing away every single college degree, right? Uh, yes, maybe you do have a friend that studies at MIT and he learned how to code in four months when he was 80 years old. But this is just an anecdote, just a, a cool story to tell. This is not the, how real people work, study and so on. So what I see is just like schools and hospitals, exactly the same thing. When you say health tech, you can't cure a disease 10 times faster than the other hospital does. Yes, may maybe you can have less mistakes and so on, a better people, better approach, better pricing, but you can't just add a lot of patients 10 times more, 100 times more and say, hey, look, we just may uh, discover the cure for this kind of disease for all these people in 10 times faster than our competitor. It, that's not how it works, right? So I'm very skeptical about anyone promising really strong results in short term and doing this in a scalable fashion, blitzscaling or in a really strong and quick uh, rounds. You can just see what happened to Lambda, what happened to Udacity after they opened their their offices here in Brazil, and so on. When you try and they and Udacity has great content, great people, a great team here in Brazil. But uh, doing this as fast as you can, just like crazy, and putting students and burning money and so on, I think it's not well suited to e-learning. Maybe if you're telling me about Marketplace, Udemy, it's a different situation. But for boot camps, for the ISA, the ones that are doing better are the ones that are growing steadily, just like me. Just like me. I'm doing 100% year over year this year. And I'm, I already have a, a good size. Uh, we have done like $15 million 2020 and now 30 million dollars almost 30 million dollars 2021 which is pretty good for brazil for a brazilian company and you know i've been doing this for 15 years it's not uh quick like two in two years we have the same amount of students outcomes professors and especially community because this is totally linked to the passion economy everything that leading said to us and created all these articles. So it takes a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, my view on it, actually we agree because uh, I have um, the deals I've directly been involved with for the past seven years, then uh, probably a little over 40, uh, but across the board in terms of companies in which I was on the investment team and saw these opportunities around 300 and probably have seen maybe 15,000, 20,000 startups in the past decade or so. Uh, never done, I've done one investment in education, um, which was a company that used to be called Admit Hub. It was basically a automated bot for college admissions in the US. Um, if you think about, well, there's this um, 
big thing called the summer melt, which ultimately our students at risk ended up not coming back for the summer. And the admissions offices in um, colleges in the U.S. that aren't as well funded, they actually needed digital transformation for automation of simple tasks. And uh, so it's a SaaS business uh, with a with, with with a tool, you know, solving a problem that we felt that you know it was it was large enough. Uh, that being said, I agree with you that you know you, you cannot have the baby in four months versus versus nine and. The way that venture works might not necessarily be conducive, even to how fast we absorb absorb knowledge. Uh, it could be online or it could be offline, unless I think you create um, a different type of incentive. Uh, so I am more interested in the the ISA model only if it's done right in a market that has quite a lot of scarcity. Meaning, um, I think Lambda is not as interesting as the local version of it that we have in Brazil, right? Tribe. So yeah. I think that there's there, there's a difference there when you look at the uh, the incentives, in my in my opinion. I think Tribe can be a, a venture-backable business, but Lambda a little harder, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I also think that I have a specific problem with Lambda and with their CEO and all the kind of growth marketing and how they use the numbers and they promote themselves. Uh, I think it's, well, I, I just don't like it. I think that the ones that are doing this in Brazil, they are much better in a much better situation. I don't know how fast they can scale. I I have a relationship with Mateus from Tribe and the other ones. And Which by the way is a they, genius. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met. I. Yeah, I am. I just as a side note, but yeah, yeah, very well prepared, very well prepared, and really rum, hum, humble. Something that other CEOs are not, and he he also knows that there is a challenge, uh, a scale at the right speed. Otherwise, you you will not be able to achieve the goals that you need for your students. It's not a matter of money. You need time. For, for these students themselves and to prove it and so on and make the... You don't have this kind of speed that you have the very short cycles in a traditional startup. So you need much more time. The cycle is really long for the students. So I think that's, that's the problem. That's what is happening here. It's a different situation when you have a SaaS business. Everyone tries to label me as a SaaS because I have the subscription model, because they want me to say that I have a better multiple, right? <laughs> and But the truth is that I am an online school. It's a, it's a different business. Although I do offer it as a subscription model for the B2B and having all the NDR, the retention metrics pretty well, I do work like this, but I, I, I'm a school. I'm a school. So... There are a lot of things here that should not be faster because otherwise we will not deliver what the students, not the companies, the students are expecting. Yeah, absolutely. And as a correction, the other business I, I have invested, it's a company called Platzi, which you probably know as well. Yeah, we, yeah. we were uh, seed investors there when I was at uh, Funders Club and um, they've... Um, they're incredible founders, beautiful story. What they've been doing for people's lives uh, throughout the Spanish speaking Latin is, is amazing. I've seen some of those, those, those stories as well. Uh, but certainly when it comes to valuing the startup and the multiples that you get, 
um, it's different uh, because of this this exactly this point that you're talking that you're talking about. I guess the story can go uh, uh, can go both ways. So yeah, yeah. And and Platzi, Freddie, uh, I also keep in touch with him, and he also has exactly the same long story in education, in the community, in he's building something in the long run. It was not uh, like the other startup stories, right? So it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yes, yes. No, they're very committed to um, to to that mission, and it, and it takes, of course, a certain type of uh, of uh, of investor to you know fully subscribe to being long term greedy. I would say, uh, but it's interesting when you think about just overall you know talent acquisition and even. Uh, the gap that we have today with the velocity that we're that we're, we're seeing with digital transformation plus now with every company being remote um have you had problems yourself uh or even with the companies that you've invested right like it's a pretty common thing we're seeing that there used to be a geographical arbitrage pre-pandemic in terms of salaries for software engineers that was a great thing in which we would you know invest in dollars into some companies in latam we could, you could still hire pretty high quality talent, but they weren't making San Francisco salaries. And well, what we've been observing now is that um, you have the bottom 25% sometimes of talent or the top 25% of talent uh, migrating quite fast, operating as mercenaries in, on both sides of the spectrum, either being poached or if they get a bad review and they get a little angry, uh, they just go and get a job at, at Twitter uh, that would, you know, gladly pay someone that uh, to just do a minor job, but, you know, that's needed because the company is so big. And ultimately, the salary that they're making locally, depending on where they're based, it's transformational. It's really life-changing. They could be actually one of the wealthiest people um, in their, their circle cities. and their cities. Mm -hmm. And it creates a problem to the point, this is absurd, and I don't recommend this for any founder, but I saw a founder in Brazil saying the following. Now, I'd rather hire uh, software engineers who don't speak fluent English or can't sell themselves really well, just so I avoid uh, uh, losing them. Certainly, you know, it's a it's a useless uh, way of yeah, solving this yeah. problem. But yeah. first, I wanted to understand if you're also seeing that and what's your take for what's going to happen in the future. Uh, my, I believe this arbitrage is probably completely gone um, and it will be very hard to get back to where we were before. So the only way, at least that I've been advising founders is that ultimately you got to raise more money to be more competitive, but ultimately hire people that, you know, they're going to be making enough money to have a comfortable life and, but also make sure you're building a great company. So people want to work for that business, right? And for you. Um, it's the only viable answer that I see today uh, because, you know, there's a breaking point that you can't fight if you're a startup, uh, the salaries of, of, of large organization. Yes. Oh, well, I, well, I, I think it's a good, for me, that's, that's exactly the dream, right, Pedro? Because nowadays our students can can see that there are huge opportunities. I, I just want to remember that most of these positions abroad, especially in the top tier companies, are for senior positions 
or 10 years or plus in experience. And not only you need English, you need some different skills about learning, thinking, and puzzles, and computer science, algorithms, and so on. So this is not something for, for everyone right now. It takes time to have access to this kind of opportunities. For sure, there are some marketplace companies doing remote jobs for simple skills as implementing Figmas, as HTML, and so on. Yes, there are, but most of the great chances and really salaries that are totally different are for senior positions. So that's, that's the first thing here. The companies that are suffering the most are the big ones, the fintechs, the really complex ones that need really some kind of skill that you need resilience and 99 uptime percent and so on. So you see that you are losing most of these talents for this kind of job positions. And my advice, and I would say that the only option right now is that you need to hire many more junior developers than you think. Because every single company, every single company that is heavily dependent on tech will have their own school university or their own process of onboarding for months and then creating some kind of uh, road. So the seniority of these new entry positions, they will be faster uh, recognized as seniors as uh, and other positions because other there are no other options this is not a the best idea this is the only idea that's the only way that the other companies outside Europe and the US and maybe China they they can compete you need to hire some talent that will be willing to create a business with you just what you said committed to your cause stock options and so on because people that are hired when they just got out of school out of their courses boot camps and so on they have this passion relation with the their first job their first company yes and if you can create this relation good enough this they will think about it before just taking as you use it Mercenary, I think it's just too strong because it's just life. It's their merit, right? And before accepting these kind of job offers, they were thinking, hey, Pedro gave me this kind of opportunity here. Maybe he will give me even more if the company grows. Of course, it's yeah. a bet. No, but that's the but missionary I, answer. That's like the it's, a, it's the traditional John Doerr poster. It's like you hire missionaries, not mercenaries. Um, at least I, yeah. the, the behavior I've observed is people do flip jobs sometimes for um, not enough. I mean, not much, uh, but you know. So so, but I, I I do like your approach though. It's very refreshing. It's just saying, look, um, hire as many junior people as possible as fast as possible and propel them with a career path for, for growth. Exactly. That's, right, that's it. I certainly subscribe also to the 
the missionary aspect of uh, you know the first formal job. I've had many little jobs when I moved to the U.S. Uh, twelve years ago, but the first formal one was when I when I joined SendGrid, and I thought I was changing the world through an SMTP API, which in the that's, end, I mean, uh, you know, yeah. like, no, but I, yeah. Um, but that's that's great. Your your boss was just amazing, right? Because uh, you know, uh, well, yeah. At that time, it saved a lot of lives, right? Because SMTP and sending mail, it was just a job done internally, and you had to handle yourself all the mess. And of course, this helped a lot of people, but maybe a lot of technical people, not the personal lives of people, right? But that's exactly what yeah. I, I know you, Pedro, because of Saint Grid and so on. So you are just as passionate about Saint Grid as you were before. So take a look at the relationship that they created with you at that time. It it is lasting uh, even today. That that that's quite amazing. That's how you create a. See, if someone just offered you a job that back then. You would say, hey, no, because I'm totally in love here and so on. Of course, I, I'm not trying to create, saying that you need to create a reason and make people fall in love with you. That's not that's not the deal here because you can't create these fake emotions, right? It wouldn't last. That's But right. you need to find something and create a relation with your employees and purpose-driven and so on. This, this is real. This is real. Absolutely, absolutely. And I am grateful to this date because as an immigrant that moved here, right, not having many connections for the folks that believed in my potential and the ability to grow over time into that company, certainly uh, um, it transformed, you know, my relationship with with the US, my career, everything. So certainly what you're saying is, is important. And I think that... Um, Have you ever thought about having, um, for instance, if you guys are teaching people and they want to join uh, startups, even educating certain developers uh, or your students about uh, uh, how to think through stock options and um, and understand the value of equity and so forth? Because if uh, I don't know where, if your students are typically doing the course paid by their own employers or if they're in a transition period and so forth. But that, that, that might be an interesting thing, right? Like just to corroborate with your, with your argument, which I think it's very correct. Yeah, I never thought about it, but it makes totally sense because I have this kind of problem, right? When we give some stock options to someone here in the company, you have two kind of results, right? There are some people that just get it and they do understand it fully and they they realize that you are creating a partnership a real partnership for the company other people just they just say hey doesn't matter if uh, it doesn't make any difference in their lives or how they deal with the company and i i just don't get it why two almost two people two different Why two different persons, they have such different reactions when they do work side by side, quite the same performance and so on. And someone is can see the potential and the other can't. I gave the exactly the same explanation, right? Of course, it's like a 30-minute meeting and so on. Uh, I think that here in Brazil, we are not educated about stock options, RSUs, Phantom stocks and so on. I, I see people leaving 
Nubank living Quintondar and and they are, they they just put on the table a lot of stock options uh, an enormous amount and they don't get it that they are just living and that uh, such amount of money I try to explain and they say hey but I need to pay right now and well <laughs> I don't know uh, in the US that's not the case right Almost everyone do understand about it and they get it when the numbers, the possibilities, the access and the growth phases and so on. Maybe it's time for the Brazilian market to be educated. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's also, if you ever wanted to do a module in Portuguese and collaborate over that, I'd be very interested just to educate people at large, uh, you know, how to negotiate and think through that in an open way, just to continue to have more incentives and alignment. I'd be open to collaborating on something like that because it's, uh, so I would have less calls about it, you know, because sometimes uh, people don't know and they and they call and it's, it's like, it, you know, it's very laborious. So uh, that's something that I think we could all <laughs> benefit from, just send them to an online course how to think about stock options as a as an employee you know yeah I, I, I always say here that the capitalism failed so much in so many ways but stock options are, are the, is one of the best parts of it right because it's really sharing something with your employees that can really make a huge difference and you're thinking exactly the same risk as your boss, as your C-level. So everyone is on the same boat or, or something like that. It's the closest thing that you can get to that, right? Yeah, I've also noticed that like, Brazilians are just so creative. Sometimes I've seen also people that do embrace it and understand the value start calling themselves uh, partners as if like the startup is a law firm. I think that that's like a fascinating, it's a positive thing, it's a good thing. And I've yeah, seen yeah. them putting it on uh, their uh, uh, LinkedIn bios or Twitter bios that like, you know, hey, I I mean, I don't know, I'm a vice president and partner of, um, that's a good thing. You know, you want everyone to operate um, as an owner and understand the value of uh, their, uh, their equity because, um, for me, you know, I mean, cash has no value and uh, it's just a matter of you selling your time. Um, the only way uh, where you can actually find value uh, is through uh, equity and ownership, you know, and, and build wealth, basically, right? Um, excellent. Uh, changing changing gears a little bit, Paulo. Uh, when did you start angel investing? Um, well, it was back in 2016. And a friend who is a CEO of a fintech here in Brazil and... He uh, he asked me, hey, I have this young guy here who is trying to create his second startup. Would you like to talk to him? Because he, he had already received a, a round, my friend. So he understand, uh, he already understood a little bit about VC and I was just like, stock option and everything else no idea and he asked me i like the guy he he's lincoln from id wall nowadays they okay, are 300 we've invested together in this business great yeah uh, 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 so 
He's right now 300 employees in Brazil doing great. So my first uh, was really a success back then. And after that, I think I've done two or three odd angel investments in 2017. So the second one was, or the third one was directly with you through the syndicate, right? Through a traditional angelist syndicate that you have managed. So it was in PyFi, it was the third one, I think. And which was really, really amazing. And after that, I got uh, a VC round for my company and a secondary. And then I just started deploying a lot of money more than I should. And because I think that as I am in the tech community, being an angel investor for me, I always joke that it's like buying an expensive B2B lead. Maybe in some years, this company will be such big that they will also be one client of my company. <laughs> it's just a joke, but you know, uh, uh, this has a network effect. Maybe not this company, but the other companies that are their clients will be connected to me because you know, right? Some angels, when they get some kind of size, they get really well known in the community and things get faster to you. The deal flow, not the deal flow for the companies, for the startups, but also for your own company and for hiring. I can hire better right now because people know me from angel investments and so on. So it's something really powerful when you have this direct investment in startups. And of course, nowadays I have 50. I think I have uh, uh, some kind of connection with 15 of them. So 30% of them, I have some kind of recurring meetings and connections. And I've, I can say that I helped them in some way. But the other ones, I'm I'm totally uh, I'm totally not aware of what exactly is going on. Or well, I know because I do receive that kind of Y combinator emails that they say what happened the last month and so on. So I can I it's not my full time job. I don't have this kind of connection with all of them. And uh, but that's incredible. There's a, quite a large portfolio for, you know, the time that you've been uh, uh, investing. Uh, and ultimately, how do you underwrite the, the, the investments? I suspect that you get mostly through the community and personal referrals, but then uh, how do you make decisions? In, in your opinion, what is, right, the ideal type of uh, founder to partner with? Well, uh, as an angel... He, he, I, I don't have I don't have this kind of skills that you have and like creating some memos with numbers and benchmarks and calculating the TAM using the other markets and so on and taking a look at the other benchmarks to see if there were some kind of exits per user per revenue per GMV and so on I I, I won't do some some kind of heavy work like this so i'm 
I, I have a group of three angels. So this friend of mine who introduced me to Lincoln and Lincoln himself, so my first investment. So we usually we do the investments together, usually, not, not always. And I use their skills and they use mine when I can help about community, B2C, especially B2C and so on. So I leave all the math and KPIs and metrics to the others. They are better than me. But what I see myself are, are the founders, how they are committed, how excited they are. And I must confess that I also see if they know my work, they know about my work. So did they, did they have the time to look at my profile, take a look at what other company I have invested, talk with someone that knows myself, and did they hear my podcast and so on? Because, you know, that's exactly when I hire someone, I think that the worst thing that worst thing can happen is you see that the candidate don't know what the company is about. He doesn't know what Alura does or just a little bit. And some stuff that was just at the homepage or in about page, you need to know. That's exactly. So Dantas always say this to me that uh, the founder, the startup, he, he needs to want he or she needs to want you as bad as you want to invest on them. Because if there is no connection here, you, I don't want to be running and chasing startups to say, hey, I really want to invest on you and so on. Maybe it happened twice, maybe. But I think that this is a sign that you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the dynamics are very similar to dating, so we need to be mutual. And you're ultimately yeah. getting into a marriage that um, very hard to uh, 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 divorce. So ultimately, passing we we our the ethos that we've developed uh, inside Atman for that uh, we call it funeral alignment. So, um, do we want to partner with this person until they die? Uh, and if they died or when I died, like, would I want them to show up at my funeral, right? And um, also thinking, if you're not married, uh, my case, at least, you know, would I want them at my wedding? Because um, probably it's the only two times in your life, hopefully, that you get everyone. I mean, maybe you can organize more, uh, but just you get everyone that kind of matters in your life um, in, in the same place. And for true partnership, yeah. I would say in the earliest of stages, which is what we do, uh, you know, you know, we we partner with people that are super fucking intense right it, it is an unnatural thing uh to just build these multi-billion dollar businesses in such a short period of time uh, it takes a certain type of personality so you're always connected with them at a personal and professional level at least i like to work that way as an investor so i've carried babies of founders i've invested in go to their weddings know their families their parents just uh, it's such a better way of uh, building lo uh, lasting relationships with with inevitable people versus when you're just uh, I hate when I, I see VCs you know talking oh yeah we're we're placing a bet or uh, or you know well we're doing a deal and over time I think the further you go up the stack uh, the more that you start facing these types of investors and I'm not saying that the decision should be an emotional one because uh, you know you you want to 
have a good combination actually of rationality and emotion, but in the end, you're partnering with that team and those individuals. And it's fundamentally important that, you know, that we both align in values and principles and that the relationship over time gets better because, you know, you three years from now will be a different person than myself. And then if we work together, uh, it's important that we are evolving almost at a similar pace. So these are certain things that uh, we, we really take under consideration. Uh, I, per, you know, I like to spend, for instance, for a first call, um, ideally, it's either a 20-minute meeting or a two-hour meeting. That's typically how I like to, to do it. And uh, in that two-hour meeting, it's so much more important to understand how is it that that person grew up and what truly motivates them. Um, in order to take such a difficult choice in life, which is building a company. Um, and having right the levels of expectations that come with venture financing. Uh, so certainly I think that it has to be mutual. And I have also participated in opportunities in which uh, we were uh, lucky to be there, but had to force our way in. And uh, the the longevity of these relationships, it's typically, yeah. it doesn't, it's not the same. It doesn't feel the same. You're not um, as excited. And I, you know, I don't know. I like to say that we want to be the first phone call in the apocalypse or the first phone call in the moment of celebration. Everything else in between, figure it out or call other people. Uh, and uh, because we can take, you know, the, the, we can hopefully be the best version of ourselves in our worst days and, uh, uh, and it's exciting to celebrate the wins. Um, so, so I I agree with you in 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 that regard. Um, yeah, and and this is personal. You said it's not an emotional decision, but it depends on alignment and and maybe what is not uh, ideal for me investing. It is for someone else, and this will be good for the other one. It's not the right or wrong, right? There is no such, it's not so clear like this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as we approach a little bit over the one hour mark, just to you know, start wrapping up, uh, getting a little more personal, Paulo, uh, I've always liked to ask, um, almost for my personal benefit, because you know, I enjoy uh, productivity hacks across the board and just or even just learn about you know curious things from from other people so uh anything that uh like you know, basically what's your ideal morning routine this is typically a question that we always ask here yeah uh, i i do have a morning routine uh nowadays that i have well it's inter it's an interesting question because nowadays i do have it and it's something new for me I was always proud about waking up at 11 o'clock a.m. and going to sleep at 3 or 4 a.m. as a coder. I thought that this was cool. I was a night guy, although I'm a nerd and no sports, no social uh, competition and so on. And after having babies... And after discovering sports, and this was when I was like 34, 35 years old. And How things old are you changed. Now? I'm 42, 42 you years You are old. a very well-preserved individual, my friend. <laughs> uh, nice. 
And this changed a lot for me, right? I, well, I was the nerd, the computer video game nerd. So I never got into sports. I thought that this was just like a gift that either you are born with or otherwise you are just sitting down. I skipped all classes, all classes on soccer and so on. I hate soccer. And yeah. I hated them as well. I used to be the, I was bullied in, in middle school, you know, because um, I uh, uh, consider myself a nerd as well, you know, and basically just that uh, I was always the last kid to be picked. It was kind of like the burden, you know, in the physical education exactly. school. And Me too. Um, always right. had, a, now I wear contacts, but always had big glasses and just, uh, you know, wasn't able to, wasn't able to move properly well, but martial arts though, were always a part of my life. I did nine years of judo, four or five years of karate oh, and good. just, uh, punching people and getting punched, I think really helps, uh, your, uh, your character. Um, uh, yeah. uh, uh, it, it gave me discipline and courage as a nerd. Uh, to not take those moments where you're socially excluded uh, that seriously, right? But I still, you know, could not care less about soccer. Um, not even in the World Cup. I mean, I mean, I kind of like yeah. it because of the social aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. But um, exactly. just, soccer not important for me at all. If all the, I'm not wishing that in any way, shape, or form. But if every soccer player became paraplegic tomorrow, nothing would change for me. That's exactly my case, exactly my case. So uh, after having the babies and discovering, well, I, I will confess, I'm not, I'm a little bit ashamed, but it was CrossFit. So CrossFit brought me <laughs> to sports. I know that's, that's another though. story. It's fine, it's yeah. a whole code thing. And people like, I, 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 look, I've tried CrossFit classes when I lived in Boulder. And I didn't like it because of the cultish uh, aspect of it, but I think it's great. It's an awesome business. It changed the life of so many people. Uh, you know, I yeah, it's a it's a fine thing. I don't understand why there's so much hate on the CrossFitters. And Pedro, the social skill, the marketing, and the community thing in CrossFit, all startups need to take a look on it because, well, it's I, I'm taking off here, but just to give you an example, if Someone who is listening to us never has never been to a CrossFit box. The difference from the gym is that the first thing that you do there is to write your name right on the whiteboard and people will call you by your name. So this is the first thing. This is personal. This is special economy. This is community and not being a number or just someone using the equipment over there. And you have the time box, right? So you have one hour and you will be there every single day, exactly the same time. You will create a group. You, you will know other people that are in the same situation that yourself. There is the, all the gamification that you put on the board. It's when I saw that, I was every day I was bringing ideas to the marketing team and saying, hey, look, we need to create this kind of space and putting people in contact. So in the online schools, one of the big challenges is how to create engagement among the students and creating friendships because in brick and mortar schools, you create a friendship. That's cool that you have colleagues, right? The online business, even the cohorted ones, the bootcamp ones, it's a little bit harder. So the CrossFit brought me these ideas and waking up earlier 
and doing exercise. And after one year, I got interest in the rings. It's one of the exercises in CrossFit. And I found a teacher on calisthenics, right? And I've done calisthenics for the last five years. And after COVID, and I'm now doing gym, but I, I keep all the handstand, the rings and the calisthenics things. And so my morning routine is to grind my own coffee and drink a lot of coffee, really a lot of coffee all day long and finding different uh, ways of doing coffee and and looking at bean to bar chocolates, Brazilian chocolates from different rivers and communities and going to the gym. So this helped me a lot, but to be honest, and I, I do read a little bit about the things that you're writing. I don't have a work-life balance. I, I'm not proud, but I don't have. Things are all mixed up. Every second I'm doing two, three different things at the same time. And I can't say that I don't enjoy it. I do enjoy it. I like being hard worker, uh, workaholic. I, I like it and I, I can't lie, right? But I do have routines and times and schedules and my calendar, my Google calendar is not very well, but well organized. So I think the discipline that you had in judo, it's something that I'm looking for for myself and for my daughters. I, I'm really afraid that they don't like sports uh, as I didn't. So I'm trying to push them into sports before it's too late. No, that's awesome. I think that, uh, I mean, a few points there. Uh, the number one thing is that anyone that I know that is, has built anything meaningful, there was no balance. Uh, you know, I think that ultimately the people that we're talking about, uh, that are talking about work-life balance, uh, I, I'm not so sure if... Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I do think that it's important that you're working on something that has enough meaning for you so that for the most part, work feels like play. Uh, there are parts of, I love maybe 80%, 85% yeah. of everything yeah. related with what we do at Atman. There's 20% that I dislike. I'm not interested in uh, you know, preparing for taxes or uh, getting audited or ju like just, uh, you know, not everything is, 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 is pleasant, but the vast majority is, uh, is truly special. And uh, you're always on the job, right? Because we, what we do is so personal as well that it doesn't disconnect. At least that's why I enjoy venture so much because it's about who you are and your, your reputation. And, uh, I think that it's uh, if it works, it's it's fine. The, for me, at least, what I've learned is having a true knowledge of who I am, and then with that self awareness, I don't uh, burn out. Uh, I've been hospitalized twice uh, by bur through just like you know just pushing it to a limit that uh, it was not healthy, and uh, that taught me lessons about the importance of then you know nutrition, sleep exercise, spirituality, mindfulness, and all that stuff. So I think that there's just a part of me that is that likes to work so much and it's so violent that I had to create all these frameworks so I can live a healthy life and don't break myself, right? And that's the, um, 
when you have this good balance with your body, your spirit, um, and the work that you do, everything integrates in a in a in a in a, in a better way. Um, yeah. Getting older yeah. helps as well, <laughs> or yeah. right, uh, or like you said, certainly having um, having kids. Uh, uh, have you found any uh, uh, interesting strategies in terms of how to convince kids to uh, enjoy sports or uh, you know get out of uh, looking at screens? Well, they don't use screens, although they are not interested in sports neither. So uh, it's not this. It's not the screen is not the problem. <laughs> And I, I don't have the answer, not yet. Perfect. Um, all right. Um, Paulo, I appreciate your time. Uh, you know, uh, this was a wonderful conversation. Uh, I don't know if uh, you have any additional additional remarks, but uh, really appreciated uh, your time and, um, and, and learning from you, you know. Uh, so uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, Pedro. Uh, it was really nice to talk to you and I'm really grateful to you and your team bringing me to angel investment and connecting me to the ecosystem no it's my it's our pleasure you know uh let's do more together in the future uh thank you so much Paulo uh we we appreciate you and uh see you on the next uh, episode uh glad to be back here in 2022 see you all right <laughs>